Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Recreational genetics is a thing. An estimated 26 million people worldwide have dug into their ancestry with the help of at-home DNA kits like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. But finding your family story requires more than learning ethnic percentages from a DNA swab. And that's where genealogist Kenyatta Berry comes in. You may have seen her on PBS's Genealogy Roadshow. Is this famous Bugs Roberts of St. Louis, the same as your great-grandfather, Daddy Bugs Roberts. So let's look at the second part of that article we had. One of the big things it mentions is who his surviving family is. Oh. Tell me if you recognize a name. Dolores, your great-grandmother. Kenyatta is here for the Atlanta History Center's Juneteenth celebration and joins us to talk about the Family Tree Toolkit. It's her new book detailing the multiple websites and sources for building out the roots and branches of your family tree and joins us in the studio. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I'm, I'm thinking of Ancestry.com, FamilySearch.com, Find My Past, <laughs> all these websites. They've sunk millions of dollars into making records mm-hmm. available and DNA tests, of course, flourishing. What do you think is behind this boom in genealogical research? Well, I think a couple of things are behind the boom. Um, one is genealogy TV. It's a genre. You have genealogy roadshow, finding your roots, um, who do you think you are, relative race. So all of these shows have really put genealogy in the forefront, and people are very interested in understanding their family history. And DNA is something that is often on sale and is affordable. Good and, marketing. Yeah, good marketing. And Ancestry and 23andMe uh, do put a lot of money into marketing those DNA tests. So I think we've seen it become more accessible. And with records being available online, it's much easier for people to find their family history. So they're finding their family history, but it often counters the stories they've told about their families. That's something that comes up (laughs) over and over again. Yes. So uh, one of the things we always try to prove or disprove is a family story. Um, For African-American genealogy and for anyone really doing genealogy, oral history is kind of your foundation where you start. And then you get the records to either prove or disprove that, whether it's vital records, uh, census records, birth, marriage, death records, wills and estates, and kind of use those to help flush out that family story. So where did this all begin for you? You were a law student in Lansing, Michigan. (laughs) What motivated you to study genealogy? Uh, So I actually started, not like most people, I started doing my ex-boyfriend's family. Um, while I was in law school, and his family is actually from Augusta in Atlanta. So his second great aunt was Dr. Georgia DeWelly, and she had the first um, OBGYN clinic on Sweet Auburn Avenue for African-American women. Wow. Yeah, so she's pretty well known in this area. So I started my research um, with his family because they had an unusual surname of DeWelly. So I thought this would be something that's good to try because my name, Barry, and I thought my family, they were just farmers in upstate New York, so they were kind of boring. Um, but I was able to find a lot of information about his family and their history here in Atlanta. Well, you're hitting on something, too. Everybody wants to find their connection to, you know, Johnny Appleseed or to <laughs> Harriet Tubman or something like right, that. Right, right. Yeah, and every family has a story. What I found out later on as I started doing my family history is my family actually has a unique story. They started in Culpeper County, Virginia, where they were enslaved, and then they moved to up state New York. What's unique about it is that a number of African Americans from Culpeper half stayed in Culpeper County and the other half moved to upstate New York. 
When I read that, I was stunned because you're talking about Genesee County. I've been up there. Yes, I mean, I know. this is like way, way upstate. Way this upstate. is in western New York. Yes. It's yes. almost to the Great Lakes. It is. And I just thought, how did all of these people, these African Americans, end up there? So there's a story. Um, it was interesting. Um, it's a story of a family called the Harmon family. And so apparently after they were after the Civil War, they saw all these African-American men that uh, needed work. So they said that they had land that they could farm in upstate New York. So they paid for them to go to upstate and half of the men went to upstate New York and then sent for their families. And that's how most African-Americans that I'm related to got to uh, Leroy, Caledonia in that area. OK, so let's pretend we're on Genealogy Roadshow. OK. What's the most notable thing about your own story? The most notable thing about my own story. Or what would you pick out to tell somebody? Yeah, I, you know, what's, it's interesting on my dad's side of the family. Um, they were enslaved in Arkansas. And one of my ancestors died with two oil wells on his property. In Arkansas. In Arkansas in about 1946. And when he died, he had no children. And his father was enslaved. So what was interesting is to find his, uh, you know, people that could inherit, his brothers and sisters, they had to recognize the slave marriages because slaves are not allowed to get married. So because his father had two different wives because he was on two different plantations, I came from one of those lines, the Patsy line. And so my great-grandmother was able to inherit because the uh, Supreme Court in Arkansas legitimize that marriage. Oh, you have just opened up so many things here. You know, first of all, you know, the records, the courts, the uh-huh. and, and the traditions and what yeah. was allowed and what wasn't allowed. Yeah. Now for you, you mentioned Diwali, you know, it's mm-hmm. a it's a less less common yes. surname. Mm-hmm. Now, oftentimes slaves did not have surnames or they just inherited the surnames of the, the people who enslaved them. Well, Sometimes they did. Sometimes they more times they didn't. So most uh, enslaved people either chose a name like Freeman or Freedman. Um, if they had an unusual surname like Dewelly or Simpkins and that was the enslaver, they took that name. But a name like Barry Carter or Jones, you can't assume that that was the name of the last enslaver. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I tell people to use the Freedman's Bureau records to find labor contracts between Um, slaves and their former enslavers. All right. That's an interesting thing, too, that oftentimes, you know, these people, many of these people, their lives were not thought to be worth charting or Mm -hmm. or caring. Mm -hmm. But as property, it was a whole different thing. Yes. So what do you find in those kind of records? So as property, um, there were records related to enslaved people. And a lot of those records are going to be under the enslaver, the person who owned them. And they would be listed in wills. They're in deeds. Uh, tax records as well. So court records, a huge place to find information about enslaved people, because a lot of times if there were slave traders uh, that had a dispute, they would actually list all the enslaved people that they bought and sold and the profits related to them. It's interesting to talk about it. And because I went to law school, I would often tell people, it's not that I'm not sensitive to it, but as a lawyer, you're taught to remove emotion from a situation. So for me to be able to do the work and talk about it in such a matter-of-fact way, I can remove emotion from it. But it's still emotional to see. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at a list of human beings Beings, treated as chattel. Yes. Did it feel differently when you found your relatives on those manifests? Absolutely. It felt very different to see my family as opposed to when I'm seeing other people's families I'm doing work for clients or for the show. So yeah, it's kind of surreal once you think about it. And sometimes I have to just step away from the computer. (laughs) take a walk uh, in Santa Monica. But uh, it is definitely work that's important 
and which is why I continue to do it. All right. You also said that this this relative of yours had been, um, you know, there were a couple of different marriages, and mm-hmm. that's a whole thing too. Yes. That families were broken apart. Yes. So what is that? What is that inform? How does that inform your looking at a family tree? So it's interesting because you have to look at sort of the families were torn apart during the domestic slave trade. So about almost a million enslaved people were forcibly removed from the upper south. So we think about Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina to the lower south, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And when you're doing a family tree, it's difficult because you have to help people find their people. So you kind of go with what you know. And then DNA has actually helped in that way, um, with cousin matches. Because typically, if you're African-American doing genealogy and you get to a third cousin match, you're already into slavery. So that could be someone, for example, whose child was sold down the river. And this is now a relative of yours, but you have to figure out how you're related. Which you found in your life, right? You yes. found somebody who was, what, second cousin? Yes, yes. So I found people in my family history. Um, and, and doing DNA, it helped me verify the work that I was doing already, right? So I did the paper trail first, and then the DNA helped verify the cousins. And I found a bunch of other cousins. And I've been able to connect with people in upstate New York uh, through DNA and through my research and tell them a lot about our family history and learn more about my great-grandmother who was born in Leroy. All right, let's get to that. I'm speaking with Kenyatta Berry. She's co-host of Genealogy Roadshow on PBS and also author of The Family Tree Toolkit. It's a new guide to uncovering your ancestry and researching genealogy. And Kenyatta, you write in the introduction that with dedication and work, an African-American genealogist can reconstruct the past. You are one, an Mm -hmm. African-American genealogist. Is this an expanding field? It is. I think as the records become more available and uh, people understand how to do the research, it definitely is um, an expanding field. And that's the reason, one of the reasons I wrote the book, right? Because when I started, there really wasn't a guide for kind of beginners to start out. And I think a lot of people feel for African American genealogy, it's overwhelming. We've talked about slavery. That's something that people feel like they can't get past the 1870 brick wall. Um, But it's an area as Ancestry, Find My Past, uh, Family Search, and all those uh, companies continue to expand their record set and make them available online, then it becomes easier, I think, for our genealogists. It makes me wonder how Alex Haley did it, right, <laughs> when he was writing Roots 40 years ago or something yeah, like that. Went to a lot of courthouses. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the other interesting things that came up in your research, Thomas Bundy, brother of Charles, who was yes. in your line, a cook for the Confederate Army. Yes, so, that, so that's the thing with Thomas Bundy. This is always very we did this on Genealogy World Show. It's very controversial around African Americans and their service, per quote se, unquote. quote unquote, uh, in the Confederate Army. But there's this story that goes with Thomas Bundy in that he was born a free person of color and in Middlesex County, Virginia. And the story goes that he was uh, captured by um, an infantry in New York. And then he was made to cook for them. And then he was taken back by the Confederate in Virginia, and then captured again by New York. So this is a story that's told in upstate New York, right? And he was this honorary member, I think, of the 108th Infantry. So it was just very interesting because he died uh, fairly young, and I don't know enough about his family, but I'm often wondering why someone, a free person of color, would even be a part of that. So he's a story that I continue to explore. All right. So there are all these little gaps. And you tell, you warn us. You say that there will be these gaps, yeah. these people who will evade you or stories will yes. evade you. Yes. How do you get How do you get to the other side of that? Well, I mean, I, always talk, I also talk about your genealogy angels, right? There are people who will always help you find stuff. So one of the ways to fill in the gaps is 
especially with something like Thomas Bundy, is to really kind of take that story and, you know, just tear it apart in a sense. Look at every piece of it and say, okay, is this really true? Were they, you know, were, were they in the same area that Thomas was in at this particular point in time, right? So you really have to take a very tactical approach, very analytical approach to kind of get to the truth in the bottom of the story. Now, sometimes you may not be able to find those records, um, and that's one of the things that I think people need to know going into this research. But you really have to take the story with a grain of salt and say, how can I prove or disprove this story to be true? Mm-hmm. So there's the lawyer coming in again, yes. <laughs> removing the emotion and getting to the facts. Yes. And it is kind of like detective work. It is. Um, or, you know, an ancestor for 200, from 200 years ago lived mm-hmm. on another continent. So let's talk about where to start. And in your toolkit, you ask people to answer some basic questions, which I get. You know, where were your parents born? Where were mm-hmm. they married? But others, your favorite nursery rhymes, your favorite subjects in school, what what smells remind you of childhood? Why why do you urge us to do that? Because that gets you to know, you get to know the person more. You know, I mean, when, you know, I was asking those questions to my mom, I was surprised with some of her answers um, because I just would never think about talking to her about that, right? You know, you sometimes when you get into genealogy, you just get the names, dates, and places, but it's more about the person and you want to tell their story. Right. And you want to get to know more about them. Genealogy is really about storytelling and re kind of uh, giving that ancestor a voice. Mm. And I think it's really important when you start to interview people to, to learn just more about them as a person. And I think it brings you much closer. And you do point us to online resources for guidance for yes. interviewing relatives. Are people often willing to tell the stories. I mean, I know in my family, there were a lot of secrets. You know, yes. there was a, a mar- uh, there was a birth not too many months after a marriage. There was a yeah. divorce and, you mm-hmm. know, all these kind of things that just were not talked about. Yeah. So not a lot of people um, are, well, some people are secretive. Let me just say that. I will say in my own family, my Barry line. So I have my mother's maiden name. And my grandfather is still alive. And I often talk about this all the time. And I tell him about it all the time. He will not give me any information on the Berry family. And my Berry family is from Macon, Georgia. And I get nothing from him. He's 93 years old. I have no idea why. I have tried and tried and tried. I said, I'm on TV. People expect me to know. and But granddad is not giving up that information. Um, so it's been kind of difficult. A lot of times I uh, counsel people to say, well, I really want to know for medical reasons, right? Mm -hmm. I really want to know for health reasons. And to also let people know you're not trying to find this information out because you want to expose a secret. You're finding it out for yourself, for your identity, for your own story. And kind of breaking that down so they understand you're not doing something malicious, I think, kind of helps. Yeah. And you did find that your second great-grandfather, I think it was, you thought that he was enslaved in one county, but it was actually another. How did you figure that out? So he was in a voter... um, registration for I believe it was 1867 and he was in Houston County Georgia um, and so that's interesting. Yes. Six, 1867, Seven, you yeah. know, Reconstruction, I'm sure the first roles of African-American voters. voters. Yes. Yes. So it was uh, Lewis Kendrick. Yep. So I was pretty excited to find that. Um, and that was something those are available online, which is great. Um, and I also think I've identified, which I did not write about in the book, but I think I've identified his enslaver, who is Jones Kendrick, uh, through a will that I looked at that took about four hours. So yeah, I'm thinking of Edward Ball's book, Slaves in the Family, yes. right? Who wrote about his, he's white man, mm-hmm. but like what happens to people when they find out they're, you know, whether you're related to someone who's enslaved or someone who is an enslaver, what is that emotional process like? I imagine you're part psychologist in these cases too. I am, yes. Um, and I think for those whose family uh, owned slaves or enslavers, a lot of times I've heard people say they feel shame 
they feel guilt. They don't want to talk about it. And I always say, you know what? We're just trying to find our people. That's really it. We're trying to reconnect and reconstruct these family units that were torn apart. So if your family did own slaves, that was part of, you know, being very loyally. It was just what happened, right? And if you have this information, there's someone out there that's looking for it. The most difficult thing for African-American genealogy is finding the last enslaver. And if your family owned slaves and you're able to make that connection for us, then we're appreciative, right? And some people will have a negative response to it. I mean, that's going to happen. But nine times out of 10, most people are excited that you're actually helping them find their people and reconstruct their family unit. All right, Kenyatta Berry, please stay with us. We'd love to hear more from you. Kenyatta Berry is co-host of Genealogy Roadshow on PBS. She's also author of The Family Tree Toolkit. It's a guide to uncovering your ancestry and researching your genealogy. So we're heading into a short break, but Kenyatta, I want to note, was here for the Atlanta History Center. They had a Juneteenth celebration all throughout the weekend, and she was helping people there. Well, we're getting her on Monday morning and seeing how she can help us find our own roots. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please stay with us. I'm continuing my conversation with Kenyatta Berry. She's a genealogy expert. She's co-host of Genealogy Roadshow program on PBS. She specializes in tracing African-American families, but her book, The Family Tree Toolkit, is a comprehensive guide for anyone of any ethnic background to uncover their ancestry and their family story. This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Let's keep going. Here is a scene from an episode of Genealogy Roadshow that you filmed in Houston. What I also want to point out to you in this document is, it says, James Dearman, his mark. And you know, Mm. slaves were not allowed to read or write, but he knew how to write. Oh my goodness, Ah, that gives so much pride. Ah, That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Kenyatta, do you have a favorite episode of Genealogy Roadshow or a favorite discovery? I do. Um, and so my favorite discovery is a woman, um, Gail Lukasek, and she was in, um, I believe it was season two of Genealogy Roadshow. And the thing I liked about Gail's story is um, it kind of changed her life. Her mother um, was from New Orleans, was a very fair-skinned African-American woman, and then moved to Ohio, and she passed for white. And Gail's father never knew. Gail started doing research on her family and got her mom's birth certificate and realized that her mother was listed as Negro. She wrote to Louisiana. They said, this is correct. And when Gail confronted her mother, her mother denied it, but then finally said, you can't tell anyone till I die. And her mother died, and four months later, she was sitting across from me on Genealogy Roadshow. Wow, powerful mm-hmm. story. Yeah, yeah, it's my, yes. It's and and that's so interesting, like how she was recorded on her birth certificate, especially in a place like New Orleans, yes, where there yes. was so much, um, you know, relatively racial mixing. Yeah, absolutely. Time. And we did uh, Gail's DNA, and I mean, she had, you know, all of what New Orleans could offer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, French, Spanish, and African ancestry. But her mother just chose to kind of walk away from that life, and Gail never really knew any of her relatives because her mother chose to pass. Well, so your work is all about filling in those gaps, not Mm -hmm. just the DNA, but the real story. And one of the places that you send us to is the census. Um, There's constitutional mandate beginning in 1790. 
Now, there's also a guide here to what kind of questions were asked on the census over time. That's fascinating to me. What kind of things are revealed in that? Well, census records can offer you a lot of information. Um, Obviously, the occupation of the person, um, of your ancestor, whether they rented or owned a farm uh, free of a mortgage, uh, if they had a radio. I believe that's in 1930 they asked about that. Um, 1940, if they lived in the same place in 1935, if they were unemployed. Um, you know, ages, uh, birth dates, different things like that. But the census, I do caution with census records, um, you will find inconsistencies with ages all the time. Uh huh. All the time. Someone will be 50 in 1920 and then they're 65 in 1930. <laughs> I don't know what happens, but just be cautious about that. Well, you also give guides to state census, and yes. but also to, to look at family Bibles mm-hmm. and vital records and court records, obituaries and prayer cards. Now, I'm somebody who just cleaned out a barn full of stuff. And I had been, because I had a whole bunch of space, I was the inheritor for my family. Mm. And I have to tell you, I looked at these things and I thought, okay, Marie Kondo would say <laughs> I have to throw these out. But, but what do you keep? Well, I think I think you keep obituaries. I mean, I I really like them. My cousin, um, my cousin upstate New York that I just met a couple of years ago, her mom kept a bunch of obituaries, and she thought it was morbid. And when I went to visit her, I was like, "Bring out that box, okay? Because I want to see this." Um, so I think you keep obituaries. You keep the the family heirlooms. I always tell people to make sure you digitize things that you have if you can, and keep them in a um, a safe, um, so that they don't get damaged by you know, natural disasters or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But also just recording those family stories is super important as well. Well, so much is revealed about American history, too, that, you know, court records, for example, these these were real centers of community. Absolutely. Yes. The courthouse. If you're not in a burned county and burned counties are (laughs) there, a lot of them. So. Yeah. When did that happen? The Burn counties was a civil civil war. During a lot of it was during a civil war, and some just happened. You know, just by accident. But if you have a Burn county, most more than likely during a civil war, then those records, especially as it relates to wills and estates and uh, different court records uh, for especially for African Americans, they won't exist. Um, so there's some other census substitutes and different things you can do to get through Burn counties. There's a whole section on that, um, and I talk about that a little bit in the book, but the courthouse was the center of where all the all the action took place, right? Where everything was recorded. And that's why and a lot of those records have not been digitized. So it's important to go to the county courthouse hmm. to plan so you, a trip. You, you have okay. So this is what you did. You yes. uh, you went to places, you went to Culpeper County, yes. you went to upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um and there's also, I, I had no idea, there was such a vast repository digitally of sites for people who'd been imprisoned or who'd been in yes. trouble. <laughs> kind of a fascination <laughs> with that. Yes, there is. It's funny. I was actually just working uh, with some of those records. Uh, and so on Ancestry, they do have records for uh, Texas and California. So you can see the state prison registries. You can see what they were charged with, their sentence, if they died in prison, what how they died. Um, I mean, it's just it's fascinating because you kind of look at it and you can see some repeat offenders if you start doing Uh research and you think, huh, this person lived to be 70. But when they were 20, they were in and out of jail, you know, in their 20s. So it's just it's just fascinating to learn more about the person they started to come to life. Yeah, I just talked to a guest a couple of weeks ago. You know, his family had all thought that they were, you know related to Daniel Boone, but he found that there were horse thieves and, you know, drunkards. And, you know, the the way that we sort of 
the stories we carry, as yes. you were saying earlier. But there is also a really interesting distinction here that I didn't hadn't thought about mm-hmm. between pre eighteen twenty records and post eighteen twenty mm-hmm. records. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's going on there? What happened in history? Well, there was obviously a lot of times there was changes in which the information that they collected, right? So. Um, different changes in uh, laws, different things related to immigration. So they started to collect more information post-1820, right? And then you also got to think of the record set uh, pre-1820, right? You're getting into colonial research. That's a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of those records are going to be in societies and places like the New England Historic Genealogical Society, New York uh, Genealogical and Biographical Society. So some of those records are a little bit more difficult to access and to analyze. And especially in the work that I do, I often don't get back that far. I mean, the oldest person I've gotten in my family is my fifth great grandmother who was born in 1800. But even getting more on her uh, is is a tad bit difficult. So when you're doing this research, it's important to understand the laws at the time. That's why being a lawyer comes in handy, because those laws impact the information that was collected on the census, the information that was collected as, as far as immigration was concerned, um, and different things at the courthouse, uh, laws related to free people of color, slavery, everything. The law Laws govern, you know, America governs our society. So it's important to know the laws of the state you're researching. Well, and also a lot of people were in colonial America because they were sent there. It was a penal colony for the most part. Yeah. And they were indentured servants. So there's records. Tell me more about indentured servants. So indentured servants uh, typically came here. Someone paid their way and then they had a a term of servitude, uh, typically seven years on average. Some were... um, less. And when you're a digit server, there should be a contract. And I give some resources for that. And you were to work off that payment of your way and housing and all of that within that time period. And then you were able to, you know, go on and work on your own, get your own farm and build your life in America. Um, so there were some both, um, you know, there were some Africans that came as indentured servants as well. Very few, but some that did. And so those records are um, available, as I said, in other societies, as well as Family Search, I believe, has some stuff, too. There's some interesting, uh, if you're of Native American descent, and that's another interesting thing. Yes. A lot of people in the Southeast claim to be of Native American descent. First of all, why is that? Well, everyone wants to be Native American, actually. It's not just in the Southeast. Okay, <laughs> I always make the Is that jo- right? Yeah, I always make the joke that when I was, uh, I remember we did an episode of Genealogy Roadshow, and this woman was sitting in front of me, and she's very pale-skinned. She had freckles and red hair. And she says, I'm Native American. And I was like, no, you're not. It's like, you are not. I don't even need to look at your DNA. But I don't understand. I think it's just a, it's one of those stories. Everyone always tells me that they've heard that they're Native American. And I think it's just something that's been passed down. It's typically, oh, she had the high cheekbones and she used to wear hair, two braids. I had this whole thing in my family, right? <laughs> and I don't have any Native American ancestry. Um, but it's that story that's been carried down for some reason. And I think a lot of it, uh, one thing that most people don't know is that Native Americans actually um, owned slaves. So the Cherokee, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, and those same enslaved folks walk the Trail of Tears with the Native Americans um, when they're making their way out west. Kenyatta Berry is my guest. She's a, she's a lawyer, she's a television personality, and author of the Family Tree Toolkit, which we're talking about right now. Okay, so you've just reminded me of something in the book. The Georgia Land Lotteries. Mm-hmm. This is a direct... Uh, Affront, I guess, to Native American ancestry. What was that? When did that happen? So there were several. There's probably about seven different land lotteries, I think. And I got 
I first discovered the Georgia land lottery is because George Henry Dewelly, who I started my research with, his father, C.J. Cook, was a white man, Caleb J. Cook, from Massachusetts, and he participated in one of the Georgia land lotteries, and that's how he got his land. And then at some point, he acquired George's mother, Mary Thomas, and they had a child, George Henry Dewelly. And those are only two enslaved people that he had uh, that he owned during his lifetime. Uh-huh. And so the land lotteries were really people taking opportunity to come out here and farm um, and build sort of a new life. And it was interesting him being from Massachusetts to come to Georgia uh, to kind of start that life and then um, have enslaved people. Yeah. So and it, like the, the the Homesteading Act later, yes, exactly. right? Exactly. Yes. Like the Homesteading Act later. Um, and it was kind of the opening up, you know, you see the the opening up of the West, right, with the removal of the Native Americans uh, to to the West, you see the growth in, and that's um, in Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, where people start to come and build plantations, right? And they start to move the enslaved people from the Upper South to the Lower South. And that all happens in the 1830s. Right. And mm-hmm. so after the, you know, the Trail of Tears, all of this all land of is available. All this land is available and people start to come and say, well, you know, cotton is king. So we're going to do a plantation and cotton required uh, was hard work. Um, and so a lot of the enslaved people uh, died early on. So they needed more. So they would just come and build plantations. You see, if you do research, you see a lot of people coming from the Carolinas uh, really into this area and especially Alabama and Mississippi. So you're learning a lot about America. We get a few civics lessons, certainly, in this book. <laughs> yes. Learn how court systems work, th- that kind of thing, vital records, and mm-hmm. how they all fold into this sense of a society um, building at different stages. Uh what is it, what, what did you learn about American history as you're looking at this? A lot. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I think, um, you know, I really wasn't a history buff until I started doing genealogy. And I wanted to know more about what was going on at that time. And I was surprised. My biggest chapter, one of my biggest chapters, is immigration and naturalization. I remember writing the book in 2016. I was just devouring, like, all this information on all the different immigration laws. And I wrote the book in a way that I wanted people to not only understand how to do genealogy, but to learn something, to understand how their ancestors fit within history. And for me... It was interesting to learn about a lot of immigration laws, but also I did a big portion of my book on Confederate pension records. So that was very interesting because in Mississippi, there are actually African-Americans who have pensions. For, for serving in the Confederate Army. Yeah, for being a part of it, whether whatever whether they're building something, but they actually have pension records. And I think a lot of people don't know that, and those records are available online. So that was very interesting because you start to understand kind of more about Uh, the Civil War, more about history, and how your family fits into American history. Mm. And so I find it really fascinating. I wanted to make sure that folks learned a little while they're doing their research. So I'm wondering if somebody gets started with, you you said you did the paperwork first, then the DNA test. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people do begin with the DNA test, and that piques their interest. Now, people have helped solve cold cases and crimes with DNA tests. But there are also families who are reluctant. So what's your advice to somebody who wants to search their family roots but doesn't really trust putting their uh, his or her DNA out there? Well, I would say start the traditional way. Just start with the paper. Start with the census records. Start with the vital records. And vital records are going to be your birth, marriage, and your death records. Um, one thing to consider when you're looking at death records, I always say they're only as good as the informant. Okay, so the person who was given the information at that time of death, they may not know. 
the person's uh, name. I mean, just before I came on, I was looking at the death record for Reverend George Henry Dewelly. His daughter gave his father's name as J.E. Dewelly. Okay, mm-hmm. I know from research in an interview that he said who his father was, C.J. Cook. So just right there, you can see how those records are only as good as the informant. But start with the traditional paperwork. And that way, you don't have to give your DNA to someone, but you're still finding out about your ancestors and telling their story. What are some common mistakes you notice people making when they're just starting out on their genealogy, their own genealogy roadshow? <laughs> uh, the most common one, and I am guilty of it myself, is citing your sources. Please cite your sources. Where did you get this information from? Was it from your great aunt? Was it your grandmother or your mother? Was it from this document? Cite your sources as much as you can, because when you go back to that tree, you're going to wonder years later, where did that come from? So I think that's the biggest mistake. And I also think people, another mistake is attacking your tree, if you have a tree online, to someone else's tree. Hmm. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is, for example, on Ancestry, you have a tree on Ancestry.com. Someone else has a family tree on Ancestry. And they pop up and say, oh, these two trees match. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will just take that information from that second tree as fact. Uh But you don't know that person. You don't know if they cited their sources. You don't know where they got that information. And I find a lot of times my clients do that as well. But then that could be a fake news tree. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And what happens is you take those mistakes and you continue, you put them in your tree, right? So there's, you know, children being born after the father has died and just dates and things that are wrong. So just don't attach to someone's tree unless you know that person, but do the research on your own so you can have the proof to tell that story. We have just half a minute left, but you know, there's just this powerful scene of you going to the home in upstate New York, mm-hmm. of your great, 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 mm-hmm. three greats? I can't uh, remember. My great-grandfather. Yeah. Great-grandfather. Three, three greats, yeah. The home is still intact, and you walk in, and, and, and you see it. I mean, and you are you can imagine them there. What has this brought to your life, you know, this, this concept of yeah. where people were and the lives that they live? You know, it's really, it's been great. For me, it's the upstate New York connection is that I've been able to build that bridge. So my great-grandmother was born in upstate New York and moved to Detroit where I was born. My mother and my grandmother were born. When she died in 1983, we really didn't have that connection to my cousin. So being able to go there and have that connection to that family and tell those family stories and share the information with them has really changed my life. And it's brought, made it very rich for me to know that I've, stepped in their footsteps and, you know, kind of given them a voice and been able to tell their stories when they've been lost to history. All right. So, Kenyatta Berry, thank you so much for speaking with us. She's co-host of Genealogy Roadshow on PBS, also author of The Family Tree Toolkit, a guide to uncovering covering your ancestry and researching genealogy. We did get a tweet from Laura on Twitter looking for suggestions for white people trying to locate ancestors of slaves that are family-owned. That is all in the book as well. It is. This is all we have time for at the moment. Well, we do thank you so much for joining us for On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. See you tomorrow.